want to talk about shadows. We all have them. Well, we can all make them. The light hits us and we feel good. Maybe we look good. Maybe we are good. But then it spills on the ground and the spill isn't light. It isn't what everyone sees when they look at us. It's what comes from inside us, what comes out of us. You can stand in the brightest light, turn on every lamp at 3 a.m. when your nerves are shot. You can think you're safe. You can think the monsters won't be able to get you. And then you look down and there it is. What you're afraid of, what you think you're hiding, all the hurtful things that live in corners, the secret thoughts, the obsessions, they come out of you whether you like it or not. Every photo has a negative, every happiness has a price, every light forces out the things we want to hide. That's what your shadow is darkness. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Hey, fiends. Happy 100th episode. What? Well, part one of our 100th episode. Man, we get to celebrate twice. I know. We sure do. I'm going to celebrate extra next week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is so wild. I cannot believe the body of work that we have amassed. Neither can I. So like 100? And that's just full episodes, not like campfire stories or patron stuff. I feel like we're on at least like 300 now. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I know John probably feels that way editing. Oh, no. (laughs) We've learned a lot, and we've met so many awesome people, too, over the past 100 episodes. So in breaking for a second with the toast at the end of the show, here's to we would be dead. Cheers. And many more milestones to come. And if you want to celebrate more milestones with us, the best way to get us there is to head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a minute, but it means everything to us. Fill our glasses with ice-cold validation. Mm. Validation. I'm glad that came back. (laughs) And give us the ultimate reason to toast. How do we have no shirts that say validation on them? I'm sorry. I'll work on it. (laughs) That's my fault. I was just thinking, like, we say that every single week. That's true. It needs to be, like, a beautiful, calming, rainbowy thing. And that's one that somebody would wear. It's not, like, a weird statement that no. we say. No. It's not, like, neighbor boys. and People are like, I don't know that I want that on a shirt. No, but you could say, like, I heart validation. <laughs> yeah. We all love that. No, it'll just be validation. You're just like, just, oh, yeah. what's happened? Just, like, 
shine is coming from it. I love that sparkly. Yeah, maybe I get like a metallic feelings. rating on I it. I love all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Validate me, please. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you just got to hear us brainstorm for there a little bit. That's fun. And if you want more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can head on over to Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you can gain access to a lot of extra content. We have all the episodes of our patrons-only podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, extra mini-sodes, our patrons-only video after-show host, Mortem. You get a little gift from us, special offers in our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. If you want those validation shirts, man, you gotta hop on over and I be know. a patron. <laughs> And if all of that is a little much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your parents' friends who you referred to as your aunt and uncle, even though they really weren't your aunt and uncle. What are their names? Mm. Bob and Mary Alice. Bob and Mary Alice. Yes. They're fun. They're so fun. I like them. They always bring wine. Wine and whiskey. Bless their hearts. They're so good. They have great stories to tell, too. I know. And they get my parents to say crazy stories. Even better. Yeah. (laughs) Things I don't need to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then your friends and Bob and Mary Alice can become fiends. They're kind of already fiends, so that's fine. (laughs) And we can all hang out together. Uh, Now, before we get to the meat of this case, I just wanted to take a moment um, to mention an active missing persons case we were made aware of this week. 24-year-old Alexis Gabe of Oakley, California, was reported missing when she failed to return home to the apartment she shares with her parents on the morning of January 27th. Alexis had gone out for the evening, and she was last seen at an ex-boyfriend's house in Antioch, California. Her car was found parked just a short distance away, with the keys still in the ignition and the door open. Which is, that's rough that's yeah what, something what went on like you don't usually leave the keys in your car and the door open right i mean sometimes i leave the keys in my car i have also left the doors open but both is a little like why did you leave the car like that you know mm-hmm. so but who knows hopefully she is safe and just had to urgently help someone else or something other than the car no trace of alexis has been found and her phone has been off since she was reported missing as well so people did try to call her right to voicemail. Alexis is five foot seven inches tall, 170 pounds. She has long, dark hair and dark eyes. She wears rectangular eyeglasses. She was last seen wearing a silver and black hoodie, black pants, and green and white shoes. Uh, our Bay Area fiends, please stay vigilant. If you see something, if you know anything, if you overhear anything regarding Alexis or her whereabouts or disappearance, you can contact the Oakley police at 925 925- Six two five eight zero six zero. We will post a photo and some information. Um, we've already shared Alexis's missing poster on our stories, but we will put this in our Instagram grid so that you guys all have a reference as well. And um, to Alexis's friends and family, we really hope that you are able to find her safe soon. And um, I think that's all the news I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything else to add before we begin? Well, Holly. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Actually, yes. I did not prepare anything for the 100th episode. Leslie! So <laughs> I am very sorry. No! That's that's it. That's just how, that's how I goes. roll. Yeah, listen, you guys. We didn't want to make anything too different. No. What would people think if suddenly you had all this information to share? Right. I they'd, ex- they'd expect things from you. Oh, I hate being expected upon. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's exhausting to be expected upon. It sure is. Quite tedious. That's also our new patron t-shirt. <laughs> I'm going to keep using that one. Well, that's that's all. That was great. Thank Thanks. you for that. You're welcome. And um, on with the show. Well, this week we heard your requests loud and clear, and we decided to give you, as I teased a second ago, not one but two episodes on the death of rock icon Kurt Cobain. Oh yeah, this is a two-parter. So, surprise, more than you bargained for. Um, I'm also going to head into this assuming that you all know at least a little something about Kurt Cobain. I will go over him in a minute, but I'm I'm assuming most of us at least can picture what he looks like. Mm-hmm. Or go, oh yeah, that's the guy that sang for Nirvana. Right. And if not, um, welcome to this country. I hope <laughs> that you're enjoying our fine shores. Or welcome out of the bunker, a bomb shelter you lived in for a really long time. I feel like that's more accurate. Yeah, I'm glad that that you're finally getting some fresh air. It's really exciting. Good for you. So anyway, (laughs) if not. Try some Froyo. Yeah, have like a, a Starbucks. Enjoy your life. That's great. So just a brief introduction in case you only know a little tiny bit. Um, or you're very young and cool and you haven't found Nirvana yet. He, Kurt Cobain was the lead singer of, as I said, the incredibly influential early 90s rock band Nirvana. Nirvana pioneered the grunge movement and changed the shape of music, fashion, poetry, activism, and youthful angst forever. Youthful angst. And not so youthful angst because they were full-grown people. We sh- Yeah, we realized that as we were talking. I like- know. He was just an angsty man. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he started it at 20 and I was like, oh, wait, they were like men when they started. <laughs> that's not an angsty. I mean, that's yeah. like the angry young man trope it is, kind yeah. of. But mm-hmm. he wasn't a child, so. Yeah, yeah. But but teenagers latched onto this music mm-hmm. so fervently. Like that's who it like really burned for. And people who were teenagers at that time, really kept it with them. Yeah. And it has never stopped appealing to teenagers, really. I know, like, my daughter is a preteen, and her friends listen to Nirvana now. hmm Which blew my mind. Classic rock, Holly. I mean, Will was um, DJing. My husband DJs their, like, school events sometimes, and he was DJing, like, the end-of-the-year fourth-grade graduation party, and three kids were like, can you play Smells Like Teen Spirit? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> All right. Maybe. <laughs> Were you like, let me grab my flannel? Oh, wait, I already have it. I, it's, it's already around my, around waist. my waist. Everything <laughs> comes back, you guys. Don't yeah. ever throw out your old stuff. Kurt's life burned hot and fast. Between the release of Nirvana's groundbreaking album, Nevermind, and Kurt's untimely death at just 27, lie the span of under a thousand days. So crazy. Isn't that mind blowing? Mm-hmm. He was famous for under a thousand days, and yeah. then he was dead. Yeah. There are things that are very well known about Kurt, things that we all, anybody who was involved in this part of life knows, aspects that form an image, target still prints on t-shirts. Also blows my mind. Mm -hmm. He was a famous musician. He wore secondhand clothing, like you said, the flannels, loved the flannel, and big plastic sunglasses, the big like white alien Mm -hmm. eye sunglasses. He occasionally wore dresses. He embodied the frustrated angst of a generation, even if he didn't want to. Kurt battled with heroin addiction and depression. He married another rock star, an extremely complicated and magnetic woman named Courtney Love. You could do a whole third, fourth, tenth episode on Courtney. Her life is <laughs> intense, but that's not who we're talking about. The pair had a daughter with a name as unique as they were, Frances Bean. 
which I have always thought was adorable, actually. It is, yeah. Really cute. She's beautiful. Yeah, she's Ooh. so beautiful. Yeah. We know that Nirvana was more than a band to their fans. It was kind of like a religion. People who followed them were so intense and devoted to this band. We know that Kurt's face was everywhere and that boys began bleaching the ever-loving shit out of their hair because of him. We know that he was from Seattle, where it rains all the time, and that he chain-smoked American spirits and smashed guitars on stage all the time, um, which is, I recently watched a kind of recent interview with Jimmy Fallon, which was with Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic of Nirvana, and they were talking about how Jimmy Fallon was like, guys, guitars are hard to break. Like, I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's like I tried to do it on stage once for a bit, and I just sit there. I sat there and banged at it for like 10 minutes, and the audience laughed hysterically because I couldn't do it. I couldn't destroy it. Oh, my god! Yeah, and Dave Grohl was like, well, Kurt was intense. Yes. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, Kurt, um, like, maxed out in his adult life at five foot seven and 130 pounds. Damn. So that's, like, not a big guy. Mm-hmm. And yet he was, like, just with a couple – I remember watching videos of Kurt smashing guitars. Didn't look yeah. hard when he did it. That's stage energy, man. That's it. Well, that just demonstrates the intensity that he had. Yeah. I just thought that was such a funny thing to comment on because I never thought, oh, that must be difficult. Yeah, I've seen that done – on shows sometimes where they'll kind of make that mention, like they'll go to smash the mm-hmm. guitar and they're like, wait, and they have to like they can't keep writing right. it. <laughs> yeah. Dave Grohl talked about, or no, actually it was Kristen Novoselic talked about how they would, the band would, when they went past thrift stores, they would try to find any left-handed guitars that they could buy because Kurt was left-handed so that he could like break them because he broke all of his guitars. They just needed this like storehouse of guitars. <laughs> and... um and that um, Chris Novosella continued to do that after Kurt's death, which I Aww. thought was pretty touching. He would yeah. still like be like, every time I saw a left-handed guitar, I would just buy it. Oh. Yeah. So that's just, while we're talking about what his image was like in the world, he was pretty intense. So that's, <laughs> we also know that he and his wife had a tumultuous relationship and that he loved his daughter deeply, but maybe didn't fully understand how to care for her safely. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of famous images of him, like, chain-smoking and holding a baby and stuff. Just, they're very famous. Mm. I did hear uh, Dave would talk about how he would be back every show. Mm-hmm. The last thing he would do is play with, be playing with Bean, and then he'd come out on stage. He did love her so yeah. much. Like, we're not going to question that one. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he was in a good place to be caring for a child, mm-hmm. but it's unquestionable that he, he loved his child. We know that he was messy and chaotic and that for a man one might think had a fortune in the bank, he sure did live life like a kid without parents. Yeah, they always talk about how they, like, they were so poor. Yeah. I read an interview where he speaks about how he couldn't um, wage a liable lawsuit against Vanity Fair because he didn't have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. And this was in, like, 1993 when Nirvana was, like, a multi-platinum album, like, seller. They were the number one band in the world. Yeah, Dave said that they would, Dave Grohl said mm-hmm. that they, when they would travel, they no longer had to sleep in their van, so they would now be getting hotel rooms, but it mm-hmm. was still, like, a shitty motel room that, like, maybe it only was upscale yeah. from, like, maybe not having roaches now. Yeah. But it was, like, he still bunked, they didn't get their separate hotel rooms, he bunked with Kurt. I think Chris had, like, went with his wife on on the trips, but it was just, like, they still had like motels and not like these gorgeous hotels that you would think yeah. they had the money and they were that popular, you would think. Yeah, I also read about how it was because their rise to fame was so fast. Mm-hmm. Like they released Nevermind and within a week they were very, very famous to the yeah. point where they were booked 
as a band to play houses with like 90 seats. Yeah. And they would roll up in their van and there would be tens of thousands of people trying to claim these 90 seats. Yeah. Because no one understood they would have had to book larger venues for these people. They were mm-hmm. nothing. They had nothing. They were just a band that had been picked up and had 50,000 of their CDs printed. Mm-hmm. So that's another indication. We know that they became famous, or he became famous, I should say, so fast. Yeah. So fast and furiously. Um, I kind of look at him as like an R-rated child. Yeah. Because he was very creative and uh, even silly sometimes. And the way he comported himself on stage was just kind of like very limitless. Like there was nothing that was too much or no line that you could draw, but not mm-hmm. in a bad way, not in the way that like, say, Gigi Allen or something performed on stage. He wasn't like taking a shit or punching people. Yeah. He just was kind of existing the way he wanted to. Mm-hmm. If he wanted to wear his pajamas, he wore his pajamas. If he wanted to lay down, he laid down. If he wanted to destroy all of their equipment, he destroyed all of their equipment. Mm-hmm. But also he was funny and charismatic and charming and sarcastic and bitter and angry and sad and kind of everything at the same time, which is what most people remember of him when they're talking about him. A lot of people will say like, oh, he was so funny. And a lot of times the through line is, and he was just so damn cool. I think it's funny that I heard mostly journalists because he had a very interesting relationship with journalists, which we will talk about later. They just always referred to him as so cool. And that's, like, the one thing I don't think he ever saw himself as. I think that, um, okay, so according to Christ's, mm-hmm. when, is it Chris? Christ oh, with a T. Christ, mm-hmm. yeah. I just want to make sure I'm, like. This is a format <laughs> from our Nirvana yeah. bandmates we're talking about for anybody who didn't catch that earlier. Yes. So Christ, his base, basis, mm-hmm. um, he would mention when, because um, a lot of people always ask about his songwriting, like, what that yeah. sounds like. And Christ would say that. He would call him out for being hypocritical mm-hmm. all the time. And he'd be like, you know, you just contradicted yourself, like, already. And he would say how Kurt would just laugh about it after and just be like, yeah, I know, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I see what I did there. And he would just go on with it. But he would always, like, lines in his songs and other things where it just was like, where did you come up with that? Or what was that that you were saying? Chris said that, like, he didn't know whatever he was saying, whatever he was drawing, whatever he mm-hmm. was doing, that it was cool, but okay. he couldn't explain it. And to him also, he was like, why would he explain it? That would just make him look like an asshole. Of course. So he's like, but he knew he knew it was cool, and that's why he did it. Okay. He just felt he well, felt Well, I do, I do believe, and again, we'll get into this later. I'm just trying to introduce a little sense of who he was mm-hmm. at the height of his fame. I, I do think that he had an awareness people don't realize. Mm-hmm. an awareness of what was happening, of what people thought of him, of what he needed to do in order for his image to succeed. I do yeah. think that while most people will say he didn't at all want to be famous and he didn't he didn't want the image he was giving to the world, some of them did. Mm-hmm. And he was careful to manufacture it in certain ways that he kept very quiet. Yeah. Um, one of my one of the most interesting facts that I came upon in reading biographies about him because I read so much this week, you guys. I read so mu- so much. I think I'm cross-eyed and I can't ever read again. Um, was that right before his death, when they were the most famous, and he was very famously quoted in several magazine articles as saying that he didn't want to be the voice of his generation. He didn't want to be famous. He hated being famous. He hated the attention. He he hated MTV. He would say these things, and then he would go back home 
and call MTV executives and ask them why his videos weren't getting more airplay. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a certain amount of awareness in him that knew that, like, if I am this anti-person, I have to commit to being that. I can't also enjoy the capitalism of it all. Right, right. So, anyway, the snapshot we have of him is a portrait of a tortured artist. Like, a perfect portrait of a tortured artist, really. A man in dirty clothes and worn-out skateboarding shoes who rage-vomited the most influential poetry of his time out without thinking first— and then left it hanging in the ether without any of him to explain. Like you said, he didn't explain any of it, just lived there. A man for whom the world was simply too much, and so he had to punch his card early. Or perhaps you believe that Kurt was too much for this world, and that someone else had to take him out to prevent his continued success and influence. Mm. I believe both, and neither. <laughs> Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my defense, there is a lot to read about Kurt Cobain. He was a puzzle every single rock journalist and biographer of his time wanted to solve. There's also a lot to watch and decipher. There are so many documentaries. And the problem with all of it is that every single solitary piece that you're going to read or see or listen to or take in in any way is biased. Because most of them have either been filtered through his wife or approved by family members or ex-bandmates. And if they weren't, they are made by people probably who either idolized Kurt as a rock star or had very specific agendas about the information they were bringing out to the world, or both. It's hard to find a person who wants to write about a rock star and yet has no opinion about them at all. You have a reason, you know. If you see Kurt as a hero, you're not going to believe that he killed himself because a lot of people had this sensation when he died of why would my hero leave me? He wouldn't leave me. He wouldn't do that to me. Well, the thing is, if he did and is a life with suicide, it's not about you. He didn't leave you. But it's hard to see when that grief is personal. And if you see Kurt as a degenerate, you're not going to believe that he didn't. But, like I said, he was both. So what are we supposed to believe? Yeah. Well, I think you should believe what you find to hold the most truth in your heart after accepting the whole picture. And I think that last piece is what is missing in what a lot of people have of Kurt, the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And mostly because some of it is things you're not going to want to accept. You don't want an image of him that is complete. You want the image of him that you like in your head, that you look up to, that you feel like saw a part of you that was like sad and dirty and wrong or whatever. You want that to be him. But I don't know that it always was. So we're going to show the whole picture. And I challenge you guys to try your best to accept it. And once you do, whatever opinion you come away with, you can know that it's very well-founded. Yeah. Okay. So, I think in this case, the sources you can trust the most also are those that had no, nobody, like, they didn't have anything to lose or gain by telling his story. This discounts Kurt himself, by the way, who was known to lie, embellish, and revise his own story to fit the version of himself that he saw in his head. And because of this, unless you're looking for an opinion or a quotation, you can't use interviews with the man himself, even though I watched roughly 4,500 of them. That, like, <laughs> Seattle accent just echoes through my head the whole time I'm reading things. This is a very well-documented fact, too. Kurt was, as his bandmates and friends like to say, full of shit. <laughs> I'm sure you ran into this reading about yeah, him, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if you want to know who I think has the best and most unbiased view of Kurt right now— Maybe not when he first started writing about him, but right now, it's rock journalist Michael Azarad, who wrote Come As You Are, which is the official book on Nirvana, and articles about Kurt in Rolling Stone and The New Yorker and other publications. 
And the pair of them formed a friendship that is really reminiscent of the Cameron Crowe film Almost Famous. So Michael Azarad was the journalist that Kurt seemed to want to talk to, to want to spill his guts to, to tell us information to. He, he wanted him to tour with them. He wanted him to be with him in hotel rooms and to visit him and Courtney. And he would call him late at night to tell him things that bothered him. Um, and, and if you'll notice, he, he's a journalist. Mm-hmm. So we can never really tell, is this someone you just felt a kinship with? Or is it also someone who you knew was going to print things, mm-hmm. which is where things get difficult? Initially, Michael Azarad did give him the hero treatment. His first articles about him are glowing and explanatory and, you know, make it look like any wrongdoings were just, you know, things that happened to him. But he also came to see the man underneath. And he is brutally honest about that in his later writings. I think that mandatory reading for anyone who loves Kurt or Nirvana would be Michael Azarat's article for The New Yorker, My Time with Kurt Cobain, Befriending a Rock Star Isn't as Cool as You'd Think particularly when a tragedy happens. This is a beautifully written article. Yeah. I will link it. Michael Azarad says this of his first meeting with Kurt, and I'm reading this because I think it's really poignant, and it sets up what you would see if you had met him really nicely. Quote, It was dusk when a taxi dropped me off at his place. Courtney greeted me at the door and graciously offered me a plate of grapes. A weird (laughs) specific thing, right? Grapes. Grapes, please. (laughs) There was a tiny, dimly lit living room with no furniture, LPs and guitars strewn around the floor, and a small Buddhist shrine with burning candles. As Norwegian Wood played faintly on a crappy stereo, Courtney led me down a short hallway to the bedroom. I got to the door and opened it to find Kurt lying in a little bed in a little room, his back against the wall, facing the doorway, his shocking blue eyes gazing at me through the subdued lighting. His bare feet stuck out past the bedsheets, and his toenails were painted a rosy hue. The smell of jasmine flowers wafted through the screen of the window above his head. To this day, whenever I smell jasmine, I am transported to that moment. Hi, he said, and two things struck me instantly. The first was, oh wow, I know this guy. He wasn't some sort of rock and roll space alien. He was actually like a lot of the stoners I went to high school with. I was kind of a stoner myself in high school. All of the nervousness went away. The other thing I realized is uncomfortable to say. I sensed that he was one of those rock musicians who dies young. I'd never met someone like that before, or even known many people who had died at all. I just sensed it. It turns out that a lot of other people around him did too. His bandmate Dave Grohl sensed it, and so did Kurt's wife, Courtney Love. Even Kurt's own mother acknowledged it. It just wasn't something that anyone would say out loud at the time. And I think that could be the most gorgeous thing I read all week. A lot of it's very gritty. Yeah. And I wanted to start this off with that passage for that reason. It's kind of ethereal and mysterious and encapsulates how the world saw him and knew him, you know? And I love that he says that he he smells jasmine and he remembers him. Yeah. And it's really cool. So this case, if we could even call it a case, it kind of feels wrong when talking about someone to whom stories were so important to use such a clinical term. So let's call it that instead. A story. And the best way to start a story is with a bang. To Bada, speaking from the tongue of an experienced simpleton who obviously would rather be an emasculated infantile complainee, this note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101 courses over the years, since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community, has proven to be very true. 
I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowds begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love, relish in the love and adoration from the crowd, which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. Sometimes I feel as if I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do, God, believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. It must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasms I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation for all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music, but I still can't get over the frustration, the guilt, and empathy I have for everyone. There's good in all of us, and I think I simply love people too much. So much that it makes me feel too fucking sad. The sad, little, sensitive, unappreciative Pisces Jesus man. Why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be, full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm, and that terrifies me to the point to where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker that I've become. I have it good, very good, and I'm grateful. But since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy. Only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Peace, love, empathy. Kurt Cobain. Francis and Courtney, I will be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. April 5th, 1994. It is 49 degrees Fahrenheit in Seattle, Washington. Rain had fallen early that morning, but tapered off before the sun rose, leaving a slight wind whistling through the scenic and winding streets that border Lake Washington, where the water itself is clear and cold. In the distance, a single pop barely ripples the airwaves. But nothing, not even the easily startled songbirds, bat an eye. The world continues turning, not understanding that a fundamental change has occurred. 1994 was a tumultuous time for music where bubblegum pop and sweat-soaked grunge battle it out for the top spots on the billboard charts. And Kurt Cobain, rock's troubled prodigal son, has returned home, though no one knew it yet. And then a few days pass. On the morning of April 8, 1994, electrician Gary T. Smith had arrived at the Washington State home of rock and roll royalty Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love to install security lighting in their greenhouse. The greenhouse stood on its own, disconnected from the main house, and remained unused since the couple moved in. So the greenhouse is above a disconnected garage, mm. basically. Gary opened the door and stepped into the eerily empty space to find a man lying on the ground, seemingly asleep. 
The man was wafer-thin and dressed in light-colored ripped jeans with a pocket turned inside out. A loose, white button-down shirt adorned with a pale geometric pattern, black Converse one-star sneakers, and a Tom Peterson wristwatch. Gary figured he better wake the poor guy, and so he approached the man only to see a trickle of blood flowing from his ear and a shotgun resting on his chest. Panic rose in Gary's throat, and he slowly pieced together what he was looking at. He notices a note staked into a trough of potting soil with a pen, and at the bottom he sees a signature and the frantic repetition of the phrase, I love you, and that was enough. Gary exited the scene and called the damn cops. No one was home in the main house. No sound echoed through the property. Everything was still. Gary, man, come on, you read more of that note. <laughs> There's no way. I don't know. You, you wouldn't be in shock. You wouldn't would, be like, there's a dead body there, and you wouldn't yeah. be like, let me read that note. I don't know. Part of me would be like, something has happened. I sh- would like to know. I also, okay, I've seen this note. Right. And it's a lot written on one piece of paper. Yeah. So it's little writing. Yeah. And I would say. And it say gets progressively bigger gets, at the bottom, something right. people will talk about a lot and we'll get to in the next episode. So I would think that, like, he probably did read that bottom part, but mm-hmm. he would have had to, like, get up to that note and. If Gary is smart, he's like, I can't touch shit. He didn't touch anything. Gary also, bless his heart, reminds me of um, the character uh, Milton in Office Space. (laughs) Kind of has these big glasses and he has this way of kind of talking like, I found a note and then I had to call the police. (laughs) Yeah, that man is He's not sticking (laughs) around to read the note. Maybe after he called, maybe. Maybe, I don't know, but I know that he like, also, at the time, there was no one else there. Courtney had left, um, and we'll get into this timeline again also, and checked herself yeah. into rehab in Los Angeles at this point. And so nobody okay. is in the house. Everything is empty. So he couldn't even run and tell her. He was like, right. ah, I got to call somebody, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> the police arrived quickly and took stock of the situation. The man on the ground, as I said, very thin, had on light jeans. The One of the pockets are turned inside out. They have holes at the knee. He's wearing a loose-fitting white button-down shirt with a pale, like, squares and, shape and triangles geometric pattern. Looks kind of worn and older. He has on black Converse One Stars. Um, and a Tom Peterson watch, which I had to look up. He's like, Tom Peterson was like a Seattle local, like, famous salesman. He did a lot of, be kind of like, I guess, our current Billy Mays type situation where you saw him trying to sell his wares on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like a funny thing to be wearing his face on a watch. But you see all these pictures of like, of Kurt. I mean, if you have seen his suicide photos, which are like, or not suicide, that's what they're billed at. Whatever you think they are. That's what, if you want to look them up, that's what they're called. Um, if you've seen them, you see this close up of this watch. It's just a man's face. And I was like, who is this man? Right. <laughs> yeah, he kind of looks like... Um, Richard Nixon, but that's not who it is. No, it's not him. I mean, could have been. You don't know. He's carried a lot of weird things to think about. Also, on the same wrist, he wore a paper bracelet from a rehabilitation center in Los Angeles. So his, like, basic hospital bracelet was still on the right wrist, too. His hair was bleached yellow with brown roots. It was unwashed and greasy. A Remington Model 11 20-gauge shotgun lie on his chest pointed towards his throat and a trickle of blood ran from his ear and down onto the floor below where it met with a pool of blood seeping from the back of his head. He had been shot through the roof of his mouth. On the floor next to him, on the right-hand side, lay his open wallet with his driver's license visible. 
The license belonged to Kurt Donald Cobain of Washington State, age 27. In the same small pile was a black hat with ear flaps. You can see lots and lots of pictures of Kurt wearing these hunting style hats. It looks like Holden Caulfield, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, black sunglasses, two small towels, a pink disposable lighter, a pack of American Spirit cigarettes, several spent cigarette butts, a bit of loose paper money. I think it's like 120 bucks or something wadded up into like a little ball of money. Uh, and a Tom Moore cigar box. Inside the box was a complete kit for heroin use. And um, it would come out later that people said that this is like where Kurt would go to to use. Mm-hmm. So he basically hid his supply up in this greenhouse. And like, so it wasn't somewhere that he never went. I should make this clear. Like he would go there to guess right or be with himself and, and to use. Mm-hmm. So that's where his stuff was. Inside the kit was several like what looked kind of used cotton swabs, a tube of ointment, two medical syringes, a metal spoon, a disposable cigarette lighter, the remnants of several spoons worth of burnt and spent what I believe is black tar heroin, and foil packaged tablets of some kind. Now, I can't tell you specifically what they were because the police reports and autopsy report for Kurt have never been released. Mm. So specifically, all I can tell you is the amount of detective work I can do by looking at a photo. And that's what I got for you. Down by his feet was a paper bag containing shotgun shells. A spent shotgun shell was located to his left. His left hand was curled around the barrel of the shotgun that rested on his chest, and his right was on the floor to his side. A lone root beer can also lay a few feet away. The door had been barricaded using a stool with multiple legs and a plaque that said the phrase, now you have many legs to stand on, with a box of gardening tools on top of it. In a trough of potting soil lining the wall was a single sheet of notebook paper, with the note that I opened the scene with, written in red ink, the red pen staking it into the dirt, like with a hole in the middle of it, like a dart. And I guess this was done so it couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. To the police, taking in this scene, they think it's pretty clear that that's a suicide note and that's what they're looking at. And that this is a tragedy. And after making this assumption, they don't really do careful police work. Mm. This is a problem a lot of people have. Yeah. They don't take time to fingerprint the scene. They don't look for other kinds of evidence. They don't look for any DNA. They don't do any of those things. In fact, the shotgun isn't even fingerprinted for like a month after this event. Wild. Yeah. It is wild. But again, they look at this and they go, well, this is obviously what happened. We're just going to like sew it up. He's like a famous guy. We don't want too much of a controversy or whatever. And while this is happening, our old friend Gary had told his pals at the electric station, I guess, electric, wherever he worked for, the security Mm -hmm. company. And um, they called, it's not clear if it was Gary or if it's a friend of his or his brother. It's reported different ways in different sources. But somebody related to Gary calls a local radio station and says, I have like the story of a lifetime. You're going to want to hear this. And they tell this radio station that Gary has found Kurt Cobain dead in his greenhouse, having died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Now, this is a music radio station, not a news radio station. Right. They weren't really equipped to deal with this. They were like, I don't know what we're going to, I guess we have to tell people. Right. So the first place that anyone would have heard of Kurt Cobain's death was on a local Washington state, like a Seattle radio station. And not even a major news network. Yeah, isn't that strange? I found that fact to just be like so bizarre. 
I wonder if they would do that now because there's so many fake reporting. I don't know. That I don't know if they would get that piece of information and be like, we'll just say it before I we have it. I think they probably would have wanted more proof. But as soon yeah. as it went out on the airwaves, people began showing up on the scene. Yeah. Fans, paparazzi, reporters. Um, and there are a lot of um, like through the bushes photographs of medical examiners removing Kurt's body from the scene too because of this. They were like there immediately. Yeah. So then Kurt's body is eventually taken by state medical examiners. Uh, as I said, the gun is not fingerprinted. An autopsy would later reveal that Kurt did die from a gunshot wound to the head through his mouth. But he also had three times what they classified as a lethal dose of heroin in his bloodstream. A lot of people also latch onto this. They say like, well, if Kurt had three times what would kill a normal person in his bloodstream, how was he cognizant enough to pick up a gun or do anything? He would have been in a stupor tolerance. Exactly. We're also going to find out that just like anything else, if you have a long history of usage, your body can handle a lot more. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying he definitely could, but I'm putting in a grain of doubt there. Mm -hmm. He also had um, a little bit of Valium in his bloodstream, which is like a, it's for anxiety and stuff it would, to calm you down. So we look at this scene and there are drugs, guns, poetry, and death. And it's kind of all laid out in black and white. And this fits pretty neatly into who Kurt was and what people said of him and what art he put out into the world. But there are still lots of people who have their doubts. Some say it's a little too neat. Mm -hmm. And as I said, there's no police work to fall back on. Nobody actually went, I should check just to make sure. Yeah. They just took facts as facts and moved on with their day. And police. Seattle police, they don't deny this. So there is that. That is a firm fact. Right. When the world finds out, like, you know, when Kurt Loder back in the day reports it on MTV News, the grief, the outpouring of grief was inhumane almost. A celebrity is a person that we don't know, and yet our relationship with them is so personal. We were talking about this before we started recording. I mean, like, what a celebrity is in your head is obviously generated by your experience and what they mean to you. Mm -hmm. But it feels like you know them. Right. Right. Like me and Brittany. Exactly. And the Olsen twins. Exactly. I know them. I know how they feel. Well, you do in a way. You know what they mean to you and what they are to you is extremely important to you. Mm -hmm. Right? But a lot of times that will really get blurry because it's not who they actually are. Right. Right. And, and this might be a one-sided relationship, but it's nonetheless meaningful. It's very meaningful, which is why when a celebrity dies, the grief we feel is very complicated. We're simply grieving what they mean to us as an idea or a fantasy or what their work changed about our perceptions. It was nearly impossible for people to believe that their beloved anti-hero would leave them without so much as a goodbye. People yeah. like it was un inexplainable that he would just go like that. Whereas if you talk to his like friends and family, they were like, yeah, mm -hmm. this was inevitable. We, we all knew this was coming. We hoped it wasn't, but in the back of our minds, we kind of knew it was. Have you ever felt that way about somebody you didn't know? I don't know that I've ever— Like very much attached to them, like yeah. I knew them? Yeah, like that feeling. For instance, if something like that happened to the Olsen twins or Britney Spears, I wouldn't sit there being like, why didn't they tell me that kind of feeling? Like I didn't— I didn't know. Or, like, why would they leave me? Like, I would never 
And I think it's not way. as personal as that. It's like the me in that sense is like collectively their fans. Yeah. Like, well, he well, loves- but I guess that's what I mean. I, yeah. I, I guess not even that personally. Like, I'd just be like, I I would be like, oh, there was just something I didn't I didn't see or like. Yeah. Well, you're also an adult. I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I while I won't I say I ever true, felt that's that like way. A teenager thing. Too. I have to think like there are definitely famous people whose death made me cry. Yeah. Like of course. when Robin Williams died, I remember crying my eyes out and thinking like, but this person represents so much light and so much like beautiful, wonderful things to me. Their work is so much humor and so much love and understanding. And you're telling me that he took his own life in his office? Like mm-hmm. he wouldn't he wouldn't do that. You feel a little bit betrayed because you don't see them as someone who was dark and depressed. I mean, with Kurt, you probably had to, but you didn't see it as someone who was going to do that. It, it right. betrays what you thought they were going to continue to do. I get, Okay, so that I've never felt betrayed, but I understand right. that feeling. Exactly. And that might be the closest idea of like And I think Robin neither Williams one of, kind of thought, yeah, but. to me that was the biggest anchor I could have was I was like, I remember when Robin Williams died. It was so shocking. I also remember when David Bowie died. It was very shocking. Yeah. And I cried when David Bowie died because he didn't tell the world he was sick. Right. Then you go back and you like watch Lazarus and Lazarus and cry your eyes out and stuff. Yeah, but yeah, you didn't yeah. even know. When that came out, you didn't know he was talking about mm-hmm. himself and that he was so close to death. Right. It's very, again, some people have a feeling of betrayal when that occurs. And mm-hmm. I can see like a tiny little grain of it in just that surprise and mm-hmm. that like, oh my God, this influence, this thing that I kind of thought was always going to be around to provide the soundtrack of my life is gone. Right. So it is it's, and there are people who have way more of an attachment than we do, and it's different mm-hmm. for them, and that's okay. Oh, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. That's always just going to be one of those hard things because I don't have right. – I, I haven't felt that way yet about something. But I can I can sympathize or empathize, which, which is the correct word for that. I mean, I think you can both. Either. I can do either. And sympathize. I'm going to do either. feel badly for what's happening to them and empathize. You can put yourself in their place and understand that maybe yeah. that pain comes from something else. So, yeah. Okay. And and again, like I said, I guess there there kind of was a goodbye though, because mm-hmm. there was that note, a note that three days later at his memorial service, Courtney read, yeah, out loud, and Courtney then went on to grieve with his fans. She would like hand out his clothing to some of them that came to his house and stuff. She was like very personal with his fans, mm-hmm. and also it should be noted that his body was pretty quickly cremated as well. Okay, so again with the police work, there's no going back to look at anything because his body was gone very fast. Mm-hmm. But the note, I don't know that it could provide a lot of answers to fans. It's not really addressed to them. Mm-mm. It's addressed to Bada. And at the time, nobody knew who the hell that was. As it turns out, Bada was Kurt's imaginary childhood friend. Oh. I know. Something he hadn't spoken of in years and years. And what have we learned about imaginary friends? Fiends? When a child has imaginary friends, sometimes it means nothing. I had one. Her name was Snowball, and we talked under the clothesline in my parents' backyard on a plastic telephone that was also a purse. <laughs> so awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> and a great time. It was pink with a rotary dial and a yellow receiver, and it was all leathery, plasticky purse. And I would pick it up and pretend to call her, and we would talk about things. I pretended to have an imaginary friend because I thought – that imaginary friends existed. <laughs> this is so sad. 
You thought they like came to I you never, in the woods like a unicorn and one just never just, came to you? Yeah, like you watch shows or like you you had a very specific imaginary friend. I did. And I never had that. And I thought that that was something oh, no. children were given and not something that you could create. So instead I created tons of them, like random, okay. and they would just, just kind of whoever I needed to play with that day that was like – the friend that that I had, but I remember wishing that I had an imaginary friend, just one friend, you, and you I were, had no idea that you too, could just do that. You're too well adjusted for everything <laughs> in this episode. You just had too good of a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was an only child who was lonely a lot, so that's yeah. probably why I had one. <laughs> and yours was so fun. Mine, mine was just like I had. Once in a while, I'd have, like, a kid named Brian that I would play Brian? with. Brian? I liked the name Brian. I was a tomboy. Lovely. And so we would, like, play cars and Legos together. And <laughs> This is my imaginary friend, Brian. And then I created, like, TV sets of things because I wanted to be on, like, Full House so much. That's, so I would just, like, I, no, create. I, get that, I had, like, a line of people that I'd be like, Samantha and Brian, you're over here. <laughs> I love how practical your imaginary friends were. Mine were like anthropomorphic kittens that talked to me on a plastic phone. And yours were like, mine was a guy named Brian. He came over, we played cars, and then I acted out full scenes from Full House. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe I should have had a sibling. <laughs> so while sometimes imaginary friends are, you know, useful like Brian, they'll just play some cars. Yeah. Sometimes they are also used to cope with a horrible event in your life. The human brain is a marvelous thing to behold. It can create a friend to help you through the hard times, or sometimes it creates a fracture and leaves you with a little piece of your darkness that you can separate from yourself and blame your misdeeds on or rely on for emotional support. And in this regard, that's when um, sometimes imaginary friends are considered a branch of the dissociated eye dissociative identity disorder tree. They are a coping mechanism that we create out of sheer unconscious willpower and a easy friend, if you will. And Kurt had this. His, his little imaginary friend was who he, like, blamed the trouble he created on, like any little misdeeds or mischief. So if somebody, like, like he broke something, he'd be like, that wasn't me, Bada did it, which is cute. Yeah. It's super cute. But while Bada eventually disappeared from conversations, the misdeeds never stopped. He continued mm. to do mischievous things well into his adult life. And one has to wonder, was it he who shot Kurt on that lonely April morning? Mm. Reminds me, isn't it? That, what's that movie, Drop Dead Fred? I love Drop Dead Fred. Yeah. I love that movie. So good. <laughs> so can we blame this on the shadow that still haunted him? Was it like another person? Again, mm. we don't know. Keep in mind that a person's death is the end of their story, and in order to get there, you have to make your way through the beginning and the middle. We have 27 years of a man to examine, so let's go back briefly to where it all began. Kurt Donald Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 to Wendy Freidenberg and Donald Leland Cobain. Fun thing about the Cobains, they, um, when they have a son, they give their son their first name as their middle name. That's so, cool. Yeah, so Kurt's middle name is Donald because his dad was Donald. And his father's middle name is Leland because his grandfather was Leland. Okay. Fun thing. When Kurt was born, his mother and father were just 19 and 21 years old. Wendy was a waitress and a local beauty. And Don was an auto mechanic and kind of a traditional greaser. They're nice. like 
good-looking youngsters. That yeah, were they are. Of, Wendy's beautiful. She's super beautiful, yeah. And they were kind of like the envy of the local youth. Okay. Because they all kind of wanted to date Wendy, and a lot of the women had dated Don. So they were kind of like, look at them. Yeah, I know. However, they found out Wendy was pregnant when she was a senior in high school. And Wendy told her parents, and they said, no, we do not want you going marrying that mechanic man. Get out of here. We'll (laughs) figure out what we need to do. But after she graduated high school, the pair ran away and eloped. So they got married anyway. A uh, little little bit of a family history on the Friedenberg Cobains, because it bears mentioning in some places. The Cobains were an Irish family from Carrickmore who had emigrated to Canada in the late 1800s and shortly thereafter moved to Washington State. But Kurt liked to tell people his family was from County Cork. Though there is no evidence as to why he thought this, where he got confused, or where such a suspicion might have come from, it could have just been a town he had heard before and liked the sound of. Yeah. It's more familiar than Carrickmore. I mean, maybe it was something he just liked to say. But this is an example, a very early example, of Kurt picking up a little edit to his life and rolling with it forever. So this is not uncommon with celebrities. And I guess as long as the edits are harmless, who really cares, right? I don't give a shit where his family came from in Ireland. That's fine. Yeah. But it also is a symptom of things to come. Like if, you, if you're, you know, covering that over, what else are you going to lie about, mm-hmm. right? The Cobains were a hardworking blue-collar family who fought a lot of demons. Substance abuse and suicide ran deep, with Kurt's great-uncles Burl and Kenneth both dying by their own hands at the end of a gun. Wow. Yes. And there is also family history that's a little blurry and that I didn't, like, spend 100 years looking into that has other um, deaths by suicide as well. One of them was a a woman. I think that was a cousin or something, but it's a lot. Mm. The Freidenbergs, however, which is his mother's side, are where Kurt got his artistry from. Kurt's mother's family was full of musicians. His maternal uncle, Chuck Freidenberg, played in a band called the Beachcombers. His aunt, Mary Earl, played guitar and performed in bands throughout Grays Harbor County. And his great-uncle, Delbert, which is a great name, (laughs) had a career as an Irish tenor, making an appearance in the 1930 film, The King of Jazz. Nice. That's a good one. Okay, Delbert. Yes. (laughs) You love The King of Jazz? Like one of your favorite films, right? Very influential for Leslie. Kurt was a happy baby. Everyone says so. They also say that, like, when he wanted something, he would just, like, scream for it, which is not uncommon with babies. It's just something that people say. I think say. that's what they do. They're like, he would scream for it. <laughs> and then if he didn't get it still, he would just keep screaming until he got it. I'm like, that's called a child, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll make note of it if you like. Yeah. Uh, he spent, like, all of his time with his mom because his dad worked really long hours and she was a stay-at-home mom. So he's super attached to his mother. And they would spend their days going to the park and, like, learning letters and numbers and kind of like a cute family existence. And from as early as four years old, Kurt would come home from these little outings with his mother and plunk out little songs on the piano about their daily adventures. It's so cute. So he would be like, he would go sit at the piano and be like, we went to the park and then I had a peanut butter jelly. Aw, so the crust cut off. <laughs> I like it that way best. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I think that's adorable. He took to music really fast, and his mother and her family always encouraged this about him. His Aunt Mary actually remembers him singing Hey Jude um, when he was just two as okay. well. He loved the Beatles and Arlo Guthrie. He loved the Monkees and lots of pretty folk music that his aunt would play for him, which is a far cry from his future career. Kind mm-hmm. of. Kind of. Kind of. Not so much, Or though. was it? Yeah, people think like, oh, he played this like grungy, different music, but the structure of his music really does reflect his early influences more mm-hmm. than he would probably admit Yeah, socially, but... It does. So his parents also had another child, a girl named Kimberly. And when Kurt was just three years old, 
that's when he had his sister, Kim. Okay. And at first, he, like, loved Kim, and they were inseparable. He was, like, her little, like, that was his little baby. You know how, yeah. like, sometimes older siblings will be like, this is my baby. Yeah. So they were, like, cute. Kurt was also extremely full of energy as a child, often having so much of it that nobody knew what to do with him. He didn't know what to do with it himself. Neighbors recall seeing him, like, running unsupervised around the neighborhood without shoes or pants. His parents were, like, just couldn't contain him. He was, yeah. like, it's just a lot going on. So when this kind of became unmanageable, Kurt's parents consulted a doctor. So they did. They were like, mm, what's going on? So we can't say they didn't pay attention because they certainly did. And first the doctor said, you should remove red dye from his diet. And then they said, which, it's true. Kids yes. can have a reaction to red dye, and it makes them bananas. Uh, and then the doctor said, well, okay, that's not working. How about you take all the sugar out of his diet? Mm -hmm. And that didn't work. They're like, how about processed food? I don't know what he's left eating. And then after none of that works, the doctor diagnoses him with ADHD and prescribes Ritalin. Now, a word on this. A lot of people cite this as Kurt's introduction to, like, recreational-style drugs because Ritalin is a stimulant. We're going to ignore the fact that stimulants were never, ever Kurt's recreational drug of choice, I guess. Right. He took all depressants, much like his hero, William S. Burroughs, but he likes cocaine too. Anyway, many studies have actually shown that the use of uh, medication for ADHD does not lead to substance abuse in individuals that have the disorder as much as not treating the disorder does. So really, people with ADHD are far more likely to seek out recreational substances and substance abuse when they do not treat it. Mm -hmm. because they seek out, um, like, self-medication. Right. Um, when you have this disorder, and aren't you all lucky? I do. You feel chaotic, like your brain is, like, spinning a million miles an hour. And so you tend to look for things that are going to slow you down because you feel like everything is too fast. And so that feels like the natural solution. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that he was drawn to these things that he thought would calm him down. Mm -hmm. But the real kick in the face is that stimulants are the only thing that are actually going to do that for you mm -hmm. because it's a brain chemistry thing, but it is very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. So untreated ADHD is what would make you seek out depressants. Right, and they didn't keep him on Ritalin long. No, that's right? the other thing. He only was on it for three months, and then mm -hmm. they said that it made him too speedy, which means his dosage was too high. Stimulants aren't something that you um, you get immediately. You have to tweak your dosage for a while um, before you really figure out what helps. It really shouldn't feel like anything. It should just lift the burden of, like, constant doubt and spiraling, mm -hmm. which I know sounds depressing, but that's what it is. And if you feel speedy, like, that's... You're just taking too much. Yeah. But unfortunately, this is like the mid-70s, and they didn't know that much. It was like, you take it. Oh, it doesn't work. You don't take it. That's just... And his parents really took it upon themselves. They were like, well, we tried, and we don't like it, so we're taking him off it. Okay. And it's no surprise that Kurt had ADHD because, a lot. first of all, a lot of creatives do. And um, I could tell just by looking at pictures of him in his natural environment... Because when I started researching this case, the first thing I did was I went and I looked at as many candid photos of him as I could find. I wanted to see what he looked like through a camera lens that a journalist was not behind. And and he's him always sitting in a terrible mess. And the first thing I thought was like, that guy definitely has ADHD because people with ADHD have issues with executive functioning and organization and they frequently live in messy environments. This was very true of him. It's clear that he was like not trying to manage any of that and it followed him into his adulthood. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that's my tirade on ADHD. So, without medication, his parents tried to keep Kurt reined in through discipline, which is never going to work with a kid like that. Not ever. 
Kurt's father was could be stern with him, and he would use two fingers to thump him on the chest or on his temple when he misbehaved. Mm. This is something like the sensation that stuck with Kurt for the rest of his life. He also um, was a very critical parent. He didn't like to, like, praise him for doing well. And if he did, it would be like, that's good, but it'd be better if he did this. He was like, oh, that guy? Okay. Yeah. And this kind of tough love was definitely a more popular parenting style back then, especially mm-hmm. with fathers and sons. We know now that it really only serves to make a kid feel as though they're never enough. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was like, well, I'm making him be more. I'm making him be better. I'm making him never be satisfied with what he has, you know? Mm-hmm. Not really how that pans right. out most of the time, <laughs> but, you know. Don and Wendy Cobain experienced increasing money troubles after Don lost his job as a mechanic and had to take another one at the local lumber mill. It's like a sawmill or something, this Aberdeen, Washington, where they lived. But it's, like, riddled with these mills and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that's what well, it's known for. Yeah, the evergreen for. state, yeah. so. Yeah, so that's that's where most people in the town work. So originally, Don stuck out being a mechanic. He had this, like, different mm-hmm. functional job that people were say. impressed by. But when he lost it, I'm, I'm assuming this is, like, losing part of your identity, too. Yep. Suddenly, you shuffle in with the rest of the town. You're working at the sawmill or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. just like, okay. And it didn't pay as much either. Eventually, there are a relationship between Wendy and Don got really volatile, and there was lots of arguing and fighting and screaming at home, which is hard for little kids to deal with. Um, and Kurt experienced listening to a lot of this, a lot of horrible accusatory arguing, which finally culminated in Wendy leaving Don without a warning. And for a while, this is so sad, Don thought that she was just going to, like, cool off and come back. So she'll be back. It's fine. She's going to come back. Fine. She's mad now, but. Mm-hmm. And for weeks, it, like, devastated him. that He was, like, just waiting for her to come back. And she just didn't. And if that's what he's saying, I'm sure that's what he's also saying to his kids. Right. Who are like, mommy's coming back. Mommy's coming back. And then mommy never comes back. Yeah. So. So sad. Finally, Kurt's nine years old at this point. The pair formally divorces. And this is where most people, all people, I'm sorry, that knew him state that Kurt was never, ever the same again. He went mm-hmm. through a radical shift in personality when his parents got divorced. And he says he was seven. This is, again, you look at some of the revisionism on his part. He's like, this fundamental mm-hmm. shift in my personality occurred when I was seven. But everybody who knew him, doctors and family included, say that it was when he was nine. Mm. I would think, though, that maybe personally for him, he just remembers them fighting. Could be. And so that could have started around seven. Could have, yeah, for sure. So this noticeable change is something that everybody sees. They say he went from a happy and loving, if not high-strung child, to one who was despondent, angry, and distrustful. He even stopped eating and was hospitalized for malnutrition, which is a footnote in a lot of other coverage of him. And I think that's weird because a lot of people will say that this was due to his emotional state, like he got himself so upset that he wouldn't eat. But others say it could have been the beginning window into his horrifying battle with stomach problems, which are pretty well known, something Kurt had his whole life. And though he was never formally diagnosed, which does give some people their doubts that it ever existed, Kurt had bouts of agonizing stomach pain, which resulted in the inability to eat anything without vomiting it up. Physicians now suspect that if it were real and not psychosomatic, not real, psychosomatic things are real, but if it was physical and not Mm -hmm. psychological, it was probably ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, which are pretty severe things that do also affect your absorption of nutrients. Right. So it would have made him very thin and very frail and unable to keep in food, and that makes sense. Um, There's also a lot of, like, talk about how awful his diet was. All he ate was, like, pizza and soda. That's, like, all he would eat. So that, I'm sure, wasn't helpful, or possibly it was one thing he found like he could keep down, so that's all he ate. Mm -hmm. We don't really know. 
what we do know, uh, and some people say it was IBS, whatever. The new Kurt, though, was painfully thin and had a darkness about him, a darkness that grew every day. He was attracted to other dark things, too, like horror movies, uh, really frightening, gory imagery, and violence and guns. He talks about, like, being dropped off at the movies and he would, like, leave the kids' movie he went to see to go across and watch, like, horror movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what you have to do. I know. That's what kids do for sure. But he would, like, his friends would go with him and they'd be like, no, 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 this is awful. He was like, no, it's good. I want to watch yeah. it. So he also no longer was showing an interest in school that he once kind of had. I don't know how into school he was, but this is what they say. He also preferred to draw – to to, like, draw elaborate comics instead. And he'd always showed an aptitude for drawing. As young as, like, four and five years old, he could replicate, like, Disney cartoons with photo accuracy. He was so good, in fact, that his grandfather saw, he was like, here, I I drew Mickey Mouse. And his grandfather was like, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. That's a copy. You traced it. Do it in front of me right now. And he did. I was like, motherfucker, I did it. Is that Grandpa Leland? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, Grandpa Leland. And this in and of itself is kind of telling. Family who doesn't want to believe your strengths and leans into your weaknesses can be kind of troubling. Yeah, that's tough. So we're back into his preteen years now, and we're going to move forward a little bit through the late 70s. After the divorce, Don and Wendy agreed to each take one child full-time and have visitation with the other, which is an odd choice. I know. To split them like that. It's it's not smart. I wouldn't do that. I don't do think that. so either. I Unless mean, the children were horrible to each other and unless they weren't that at the time yeah i don't it's it's the same thing with cats you don't when it's a brother and sister I know, cat, you try you, not to split them up yeah you keep them together but wendy took kim and don took kurt and this rejection from his mother who i told you earlier he was the closest to and spent all of his like formative time with mm-hmm. was extremely hard to swallow yeah. essentially his mom chose to just take his sister that's awful i know With his father alone, he was kind of like learning to cope with the situation. And he asked one thing of his dad. He said, I I want you to do one thing for me. Never, 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 never remarry. It needs to be just us forever. And his father agrees. And he definitely shouldn't have. How old is his dad at this point? Isn't he only like 30? He was 21 when he had Kurt. And Kurt's like 10, so like 31. Yeah. He's he's a young lumberjack stud. <laughs> yeah, he's a young, newly minted lumberjack. There's no way, Kurt. <laughs> I know, there is no way. And he just, father also should have never agreed to that. He should have never told his son, yeah, 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 I'm never going to remarry. You should have, you, you when you're parenting, you have to say something like, well, we don't know how our life is going to go, but if it ever does, it'll be somebody that I make sure you're all right with, and I'll make sure you're in on this decision. Like, that's how you do it. I know. You don't just say no. I just think that's that's what's so hard about being such a young parent mm-hmm. is I mean they were trying to figure out their lives and and how to be adults and how to be parents like while their kids were growing up. Yeah. And I know that you don't really know how to be a parent till you're a parent, yeah. but there are some things that you can kind of learn as you get older because you've had your own experiences well, by yourself. Well, their brains weren't even done growing up. Yeah. Your brain isn't done until you're like 26. Right. So then you have this like parasite that was living in you now out in the world with you. (laughs) What do I do with this? So shortly after this ill-fated conversation, Don meets a woman named Jenny Westaby, and they begin dating. Jenny had two children of her own named Mindy and James, and at first, Kurt liked Jenny because she was making an enormous effort to get him to like her. Obviously, Mm -hmm. dad's new girlfriend, dad has this troubled kid 
who's like kind of dark and draws pictures in a corner and likes right. violence. And she's, she's like, I should probably make this child like me. That would be a lot better. Us stepmoms work real hard. I know. <laughs> I know. And poor Jenny, like really, she did try. And, and first Kurt liked it. He was like, oh, look at all this attention I'm getting. I, what I missed is maternal attention. But when the pair decided to get married, that stopped. He stopped being happy about her whatsoever. His father had promised him, and he was breaking a promise. Mm. After this, Kurt starts to become, like, pretty insufferable at home. He was never satisfied with his life. He was never satisfied with his surroundings. He was always screaming at his father or Wendy or his step-siblings. He claimed that his father and stepmother favored his stepmother's, like, her natural children and treated him very unfairly. So he'd be like, well— Jenny's children get everything they want, and I'm just left to the side. Like, they, they spoil them, and they don't give me anything. Most examples of this are things like, well, they got to eat all the candy they wanted, and I wasn't allowed. You also have, like, an issue with possibly with candy. Like, yeah. <laughs> the doctor told you as a child you, weren't supposed, you were supposed to eat less sugar, so maybe Dad's falling back on that, going, like, maybe it was the food. Yeah. But that's, that's the other side of it is they were like, well, yeah, we had to treat him a little differently because he was a very different child. Mm -hmm. And he had extreme emotional needs that mm -hmm. sometimes we didn't even know how to meet. He would persist in this line of thinking also when talking to, like, his mother's side of the family. He would tell his mom, like, well, dad treats me like shit. And Wendy favors her kids over mine. And I'm, uh, what, what about me? Or J Jenny. No, yeah, Jenny. Jenny. Sorry. About, but, but in truth— his his dad and his stepmom really were kind of bending over backwards to accommodate him. They would often have to walk on eggshells to avoid his rapidly increasing violent mood swings. It's another thing that starts to happen around when puberty is setting in. His mood swings, which all prepubescent children have mood swings, but his were scary and violent. And this would follow him throughout the rest of his life. And his bandmates will even say this. They'll be like, we'd be out of rehearsal. And he'd be, like, charming and happy and joking about things. And then I'd turn my back to have another conversation, and I'd turn again, and he'd be sitting on the floor with his head in his hands, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. It happened yeah. so quickly. And that's, that's got to be extremely difficult to deal with as well. So at this point, it is 1979, which is a watershed year for Kurt. Leslie, why don't you um, give us a little bit about 1979 to set the stage for us and to give me a break for a second. Sure, sure. Thank you. So I kept it music-centric just to kind of see what the vibe yes, was. we're very musical in this case, yeah. so that's perfect. So at first, I was looking up, like, alternative hits of 1979, thinking, like, that might be what Kurt would have been listening but to at this time. But it wasn't, interestingly enough. So I'm going to talk about some of the bands that were out there because these are going to also continue to be the bands that are in the 80s that he probably then does get into later. So these were some of the big albums that came out in 1979. Okay. One of my favorites, The Clash, London Calling. Very good album. The Undertones. The Undertones. <laughs> of course. There was uh, The Single Ghost Steady by Buzz Cox. Machine Gun Etiquette by The Damned. It's Alive, Ramones. So Ramones were big. Yeah. Uh, Nervous Breakdown by The Black Flag, which is a band that Kurt goes to see with a... With, uh, that's like one of his first punk rock shows that he yeah, goes to see. Yeah, we'll, we'll mention that in a little mm -hmm. bit. And that was some of that was some of like the alternative hits. So then, these were what was on the pop hits, though, which is probably what he yeah, was actually listening true to story. at the time. Heart of Glass by Blondie. Yes, love it. 
September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Super fun. <laughs> Still a good roller skating jam. Hot Stuff by Donna Summer. I bet that was his favorite. <laughs> mm-hmm. Looking for some hot stuff. <laughs> At first I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. <laughs> Guys, I wish you could see how serious <laughs> Leslie was when she sang that. She committed to it so yeah. hard. That's Of Course I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. And the YMCA. Obviously. Hit the hit the stay At the. <laughs> good old village people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good music. There's One Way or Another by Blondie. She had a good year. Don't Bring Me Down by Electric Like Orchestra, which I know he, he liked. He did like Yellow. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of good music on both sides. But what I really enjoy about the pop hits of 1979 yes. specifically is that they are still, a lot of them are still very uh, disco sounding. Yeah. And it's just, I feel like they have no idea what's about to happen oh, in like no. a year or two where they're like, oh no. <laughs> People are going to be mad at us. Yeah, we, we got <laughs> we to gotta change yep. real fast. But a lot of the bands that were the alternative bands they were. It was just interesting that they were, like, names that I knew so well. Right. But I, I consider them more of, uh, like, the 80s, like, yeah. getting into that indie 80s rock. Interesting. Like, the Smiths are going to come soon, and the Cure is going to mm-hmm. get really big. And, yeah. Cool. But for now, it's still, like, pop is still on the charts. Yeah, and he and was is, listening to things that were more popular. That was mm-hmm. his first musical influences. They were not—I wasn't, like— Grimy punk rock from day one. Where's right. a kid even going to find that? Well, like, exactly. I would say by the time he gets into high school, which is for most of us, that's where we start to get into the more underground And scene. our own music. You're not just and, listening to what your parents yeah. or your aunt or uncle spoon feed you. Mm-hmm. And the music he's going to get to hear on the underground scene is going to be, like, incredible. So Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's, it. that's the music. So it's 1979, and Don and Jenny have a baby of their own a boy they named Chad. So there's a, a whole person out there in the world named Chad Cobain. Did you know that? Yeah, I did not. I know, me neither. And this creates like a bonded family unit between Don and Jenny and just makes Kurt furious. He does not like that they had their own child and now they have their own dynamic that, that he's also on the outside of. He feels kind of perpetually on the outside of things and that makes him feel even more so. So he begins to act out at school. He starts refusing to listen to teachers. He makes a lot of biting, sarcastic comments to other students and faculty members. This is around the time where he starts drawing comics of, like, teachers, but really unflattering comics Mm -hmm. of teachers, like Mm -hmm. them doing stupid things or having violence happen to them or something, which the teachers didn't love, but the students thought were great. He was funny, and a lot of people remember that, but he was mean funny Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And in a middle schooler, that's... That can be tough. Right. Middle schoolers are scary. They're, oh, we talked about that. They are terrifying. <laughs> they're like not even teens yet, and they're already scary. I know. Kurt's mother, Wendy, also remarried this year, but to a man who violently abused her. And Kurt saw this happen every time he went to see her. There are reports that his violence occasionally tor- turned towards Kurt as well, though I cannot substantiate these reports. Kurt did, however, witness this man break his mother, Wendy's arm in a physical fight that the two of them had. You can't even really call it a fight. It was just him abusing her. And he was. she was hospitalized. And when she got out of the hospital, she'd never filed reports against him or did anything. She just went right back home and stayed with him as though nothing had happened mm-hmm. because she felt she really needed this man to get by, which is another horrible thing for a child to watch. Yeah. 
Kurt developed a fascination with guns specifically. He really liked guns and death. Really liked death. Um, and his father, oh, and medical texts. He loved like medical texts and medical illustrations and stuff like that. Hmm. Which is like follows him into his visual artistry um, when we get into the Nirvana years. Okay. Because a lot of his like visual art is like fetuses and the muscular system and stuff like that. So he always had a fascination yeah. with like seeing these medical illustrations. It's probably, I mean, I could see how that's connected to his love for, like, the horror movies, too. For it's sure. It's just a very visual— Listen, I have medical illustrations in my home. I know. I mean, I love them. <laughs> so I, I get it. And yeah. I think I think especially with, like, a creative person, mm -hmm. you just—you want to understand your body, other people's bodies. Of course, yeah. And generally, those textbooks are—they're the coolest ones to look at in for school. Sure. Well, medical history is also, like, a horror movie in and of itself. It, it's pretty oh, grim. It sure is, Yeah. My mother, when I was little, had this—oh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before. This will be fun. Yeah. Um, had this giant, thick book that looked like the dictionary, mm -hmm. and it was called, like, A Mother's Book of Maladies or something. It was, like, a, a encyclopedia. Like Maybe I have talked about it before. Of childhood diseases yep. that you could buy. But it had illustrations and descriptions of, like, every ailment under the sun. Mm -hmm. And I remember finding it when I was, like, not old enough to find it. <laughs> definitely like five or so. And I would just pour through it and I'd be like, oh my God, these are things that could happen to people. It's the scariest thing in the world. Like but then what? I would just keep reading it. It's like WebMD. It is, but it's like, it has the same kind mm -hmm. of effects as like a horror movie. It's yeah. scary and awful, but then you just keep reading it. Yeah. So I can see how that would be a similar thing there. So, okay, fascinated with guns and death, drawn fetuses and mm -hmm. features and stuff like that. His father and his stepmother was like, we should probably get him into therapy, mm -hmm. you know, which is for the time very good and progressive. Mm -hmm. um, also, the fact that he lives in Washington, yes. there's probably a ton of hunters as well. So yeah. I'm sure guns are just in the stores. It's very normal yeah. for him to I, see. I'm sure they're not. And uncommon. obviously there's, I mean, there seems to be like a, just maybe a step above like an unhealthy obsession, yeah. poss possibly. But either way, well, he's curious and, and they're around him, I'm sure. That's another thing. If you go back and look at Nirvana's videos and Nirvana's artwork, there are guns in all of them. Yeah. Guns in everything he did. There's guns all over the place. Yeah. And nobody really found that. I mean, if that were to pop up today, people would be furious because mm -hmm. you don't want kids looking at guns and talking about guns. We see what happens when kids have guns. Mm -hmm. But back then, it wasn't really something that we talked about or that or maybe even happened, you know? Well, we us. were – parents were furious, but there was nothing that they could do about it yet. Yeah. That would be in the 2000s. Yeah, that's true. Because shit happened. Because sh exactly. shit Exactly. <laughs> that shit happened publicly. So – uh, the therapist then recommends that Kurt should live with just one family. He shouldn't do a visitation and bounce back and forth. Mm -hmm. He should just primarily live with one to stabilize his environment. And so Wendy just immediately grants full custody to Don and Jenny. This is so tough. I don't know. Again, that's like your mother surrendering you. Yeah. The only thing I can think of, and we talked a little bit about this mm -hmm. last night, was that uh, I feel like did she just think that he should be with his father because like he a was male a man? Friend? I guess I don't yeah. know, or she just I don't I don't know her as a human. Maybe right. he was overwhelming for her too. Like Could he be, was yeah. a lot to parent, and she was, and she was young. 
still. She you was know? young and probably scared and had this abusive relationship and a daughter and like didn't. I mean, maybe, maybe she also felt like he shouldn't be growing up in a household with the kind of guy she was with. Maybe. So maybe there she are was lots protecting of reasons. Him. I mean, I also, know. you know, like, I don't know, but it did happen. And like, you cannot help but think he must have felt kind of abandoned. Mm-hmm. His mom just that was like, okay, well, then you can just live with your dad. That's fine. And maybe his dad was advocating for him, like, I want him to stay here. Yeah, you know, they did. He they, they were like, all right, we'll take him. We want him. We want to help him. Mm-hmm. So now we're, we're at, after all of this happens, we reach about eighth grade for Kurt. I'm going to, okay. like, hit that as a goalpost. One day in eighth grade, he is walking to school with his friends. This is an early eighth grade, still nice out kind of, when they come upon the local elementary school and they see a boy hanging in a tree. His eyes are bulging out of the sockets. His skin is sickly gray. And they approach him to find that, like, this is a kid who had taken his own life. Mm. And Kurt and his friends just kind of stand there and stare in shock for about a half an hour. And Kurt's friends remember him being like, I know that kid. That's my friend's brother. That's so weird. But other than that, he was unaffected by it. The kids were, like, crying, and he was just standing there staring at it. Right. Well, like we said, though. Can't judge anybody's reaction, but it is noteworthy enough. Uh Uh-huh. To say that, you know, it, it affected him differently than the other children. And this is also the year that Kurt starts smoking pot because he felt like it dulled, like, the sense of rage inside of him. Yeah. It dulled the urgency that life had and the desperateness. Um, again, like I said, when you have certain things in your brain chemistry, what you think you want is something to slow you down. Mm-hmm. Just turns out that those chemicals aren't really what you need. And he had a lot of rage, which you and I discussed, too. It's not exactly sadness. People really remember him a lot as a sad person, but he was very angry a lot mm-hmm. as a child. And this rage he frequently took out on his father and stepmother. In one particular incident, he trapped their cat in the chimney and watched as it slowly suffocated to death and told no one. Then he would laugh when the smell of its rotting body filled the house. <sighs> it's like one of his jokes that just didn't hit well. Nope. <laughs> And that's not something someone does when they are well. No. I mean, killing animals is all over any research we've done for any other person. Yeah. Which is something weird that I feel I need to mention, too. When I went into this case, I thought, well, I'm going to be researching things that are very different. This, his, his upbringing is going to look different. There's going to be different goalposts and stuff. Then, you know, we usually, a lot of killers have kind of, for lack of a better term, a formula. You know, you see it, there's a head injury, there's this, there's a series of different disorders or different disordered upbringings, and they are here too, and I didn't think they would be. I know, that's There's no head injury that I know of, don't mistake that one, but still, there's like this incident where he kills an animal and doesn't feel a thing about it. There's an incident where he sees a contemporary dead and doesn't ever express that making him sad. Mm -hmm. It's... It has similarities. Mm-hmm. But then again, we are talking about whether he killed someone or not. True. So just interesting to think about. That summer, his uncle Burl shot himself in the stomach, taking his own life. And five years after that, his uncle Kenneth would follow suit, shooting himself in the head as his family watched. Wow. Was Kurt there for that? No, he's okay. like a media family. But he knew. And again, when these things happened, he was like, well, yeah, that's mm-hmm. what they did. It was not ever, like, this profound sadness that he had. In fact, he, like, watched his father grieve substantially over the death of his, um, I think it's his brother. And he was just, like, kind of un... It didn't do anything to him. So for his 14th birthday, 
Kurt then, his uncle, offers him a, on his mother's side, offers him a used bike or a used guitar. He's like, you want a bike, you want a guitar. I'll get you one of the two. And Kurt said, oh, the guitar, obviously. And it was really funny because the guitar is like kind of busted up and broken and doesn't work well. But it is, it is like the grand pinnacle of his life. Nothing has ever been greater to him than this guitar. His uncle teaches him how to play a few simple songs. And from there on out, even though it was broken, it went with Kurt every single place he ever went. He learned how to play Stairway to Heaven and Louie Louie and Another One Bites the Dust. He played awesome. all, yeah, all these like pop songs of the time. He was just learning yeah. how to play music. So that's his introduction to playing music again. Um, Kurt also took to making movies with his friends, horror movies specifically, one of which is titled like Kurt's Bloody Suicide or something. And it mm-hmm. depicts his own, him killing himself by slitting his own throat. Around this time, he also told his friends that he had, quote, suicide genes. He okay. was like, I come from people who, who take their own lives. And he also began saying that he wanted to be the most famous musician in the world and then kill himself. He said that to a lot of people at a lot of points in time, and it is very well documented that it came out of his mouth. Wow. So after eighth grade, we're at the start of ninth grade, and Kurt has his, like, physical for the beginning of the year, and his doctor says that he might have scoliosis. And you can read this everywhere, too. Kurt talked a lot about how he had crippling scoliosis, and and it affected his guitar playing, as did the fact that he was a lefty who was forced to write with his right hand as a child. That one's true. He did. He was made to write with his right hand. But Most he did. kids were at that. Back then, yeah. yeah. That's a little late for that. But he also played guitar left-handed and always did, um, and, which is kind of a, an outlier in the musical world. Yeah. Uh, kind of like Paul McCartney, also mm-hmm. a left-handed guitarist. But the problem with this story is that Kurt didn't actually have scoliosis. Don took him to a doctor who ran further tests and found out that Kurt simply had abnormally long arms. Oh. They thought he would grow into them. I guess he did. But he ran with the scoliosis thing and told his mother that his father had done nothing to treat him for his scoliosis. And his mother was furious, saying that her son should have been kept in a full body cast. But Kurt knew the truth. He just didn't say it. It's so weird. I I know. Like, I also wonder if he just doesn't understand. Like, he'd hear something and latches on and then goes from there. Because I see that with kids all the time, too. They just... You say one thing to them, like, oh, I think you might have this. And then even though it's like, oh, no, you don't, they're still, like, stuck on the fact that they were yeah. told once they might have it. A, uh, a more comprehensive mental health profile of him would have absolutely been very helpful. He did later in life get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which makes some sense and not some sense. And there are a lot of schools of thought, and we'll go into it more in the next episode when we talk about that kind of stuff, that he had borderline personality disorder. Mm. And boy, if he doesn't check all the goalposts of that one, like he meets every, every single qualifying factor. It's a very like self-destructive, outwardly destructive, anguished existence where they don't want to hurt people, but they constantly do. It's, mm-hmm. And it's an, an issue with um, forming relationships and being either codependent or not dependent at all. And um, And also an interesting thing is that like these are people that, don't have empathy, really. They don't understand how to put themselves in the place of other people. Mm. And Kurt uses the word empathy so much. But I don't know if he uses it right. It does, even in his suicide mm-hmm. note, it didn't feel right how he was using yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, did you feel that? Or did you know you should and couldn't? Right. Which would be a struggle. Right. That would be very difficult. Why am I not this way? Why don't I understand it? Why don't I feel these things? That's got to be hard. Or as I think as he was also doing it was that he was feeling it too much. 
and maybe yeah. couldn't express it sure. either. Because I can, I can see that too, like where he isn't, he sees something traumatic mm-hmm. or hears something traumatic. Yeah. And he doesn't have what we think is the appropriate response. But I almost think that even based on how he writes his songs, right. it seems like seems like he has an artistic way of finally letting it out. Yeah. And he lets it out that way. But yeah. he can't let it out to anybody. He can't tell you. can't tell right. his family. There can't are a lot tell of weird personal important. blocks. And we'll talk about this more in a second when you mm-hmm. have a really wonderful quotation. Where, And I said this to you before we began. I said, I don't feel like he had real friends. They knew him. They engaged in activities with him. But nobody profoundly seemed to know him, Mm -hmm. with the exception of a couple journalists, Mm -hmm. which is very different when you're talking to someone whose words, who is going to print your words. And maybe, and maybe his wife, like, to be, you know. And and she doesn't speak as though she didn't know him, but like even friends and bandmates and stuff, they have a certain level of of knowledge of who he was, but Mm -hmm. it does end at a certain place. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Those I find those things very interesting, and we'll go into them more next week, but introducing them is good right now. Yeah, yeah. As a freshman, Kurt discovered that he was really good at wrestling, too, because he had no fear. Okay. And if you have, like, no impulse control, which happens when you have ADHD, and also if you have borderline personality disorder, you just do shit, you won't be afraid of getting hurt. And so wrestling, you're probably great at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was quickly promoted to the varsity team, even though he was very small for his age, which didn't go too well for him because, like, everybody else was real big. <laughs> Um, Kurt recounts a story where his father came to one of his meets and he met his father's eye. And when he saw that his father was there, he just laid down on the floor and gave up and threw the match in defiance. But nobody else that was at any of his matches ever remembers this actually happening. Right. And that would be something that they'd remember. That's pretty memorable. This like little, the littlest kid on the team just laying down and let somebody pin the shit out of him. However, his father does recall in some place, he's like, oh, that little shit threw a match. But that could have been that he just didn't think he tried his best because yeah. when he said his father was quite critical. I don't know. Again, there's a lot of revisionism that happens. Yeah. He also, Kurt also played baseball and he would intentionally strike out to piss his father off. <laughs> oh, you love baseball? I'll play, but I refuse to hit the ball. Yeah. God. <laughs> Ugh, that's an infuriating child. Like, I can't even imagine. No, it's so funny. He figured if he was going to be a, depois- a disappointment, he would just go as hard as he could. Yeah. After his freshman year, Don Cobain realized that he was no longer really equipped to raise his troubled son, and so he sent him to live with a number of other people, family members, including his grandfather for a time, and also a friend named Jesse Reed. While living with Jesse Reed, he lived with his family who was born-again Christian, and Kurt briefly became a devout Christian and regularly attended church services, but he later renounced his Christianity, engaging in what was described as anti-God rants. Yeah. I was like, how did that work out for him? Not, Not well. well. After like a little, he was like, okay, no, no. <laughs> real fast. Eventually, he landed back with his mother, Wendy, and he enrolled in Weatherwax High School, also known as Aberdeen High School, which we discovered through a frustrating series of confirmations. Yes. <laughs> um, this is new territory for Kurt. He's going to a new high school in his sophomore year. That's an adjustment period for a kid. That's pretty mm-hmm. tough. So he spent a lot of his time reading like Charles Bukowski and William S. Burroughs and Patrick Suskind in the library. Um, And throughout his whole life, Kurt spoke about how, um, I believe it's Patrick Seskind's novel, Perfume. That's not the author, and I got it wrong. I'm sorry. I have 100,000 sources and tabs open. Know that I know who it is. This is a novel that follows a character named Jean-Baptiste Grenois, 
an unloved orphan in 18th century France who was born with an exceptional sense of smell and is capable of distinguishing like a far greater range of scents than anybody else. And Grenoir becomes a uh, person who makes perfume, but later gets involved in a murder because he meets a girl who has like this scent that intrigues him and he like can't stop his obsession for her or something, which is an interesting thing for him to be obsessed with. Yeah. So during this time, Kurt also started bullying other kids. Okay. Yeah. And he had problems with school administration because of that. He also felt an intense kinship with with gay students because he watched them be bullied for things that he saw were not any fault of their own. And so he would also tell people that he was gay just to, like, fuck with them. He'd be like, well, I'm gay. And I clearly, I, I don't care. I will, I'll, you don't want to mess with that guy that doesn't give a shit about anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> so he also goes as far as to say things like, oh, I was like a really proud gay man, even though I wasn't gay. Yeah, he's very proud of my gayness, even though I I wasn't. Later in life, he identifies in some sources as bisexual, even though, like, he never really explores that side. I'm not here to say he was or wasn't. Live your life. Whatever. Um, But he did like to press those buttons. He did like to do things like wear a dress or, you know, Mm -hmm. identify with the gay population of his school to be like, why? what's wrong with them? Like, why would you even, why would you judge them for this? This is their life. Which is one of the, the better things that we... Can notice about yeah. him and it was a revolutionary point of view he also um is quoted as saying that he hated the fact that he was a straight white man he very much recognized his privilege and and the privilege of his entire race and gender which is again an advanced point of view for somebody living in that point in time mm-hmm. we didn't really use those phrases until semi recently right so the, he had a kind of a clarity about him when it came to some things that other people didn't seem to have which could also isolate him further. And be upsetting, because this is a clarity about things that were extremely troubling. Yeah. Kurt was also introduced to punk rock and hardcore music by his classmate, Buzz Osborne, lead singer and guitarist of the Melvins. Now, we picked this apart, and it seems that he met Buzz when he went to his old high school, Montesano Junior and Senior High School. Mm -hmm. But there are other sources that say it was Aberdeen. So, yeah. And it's confusing because Buzz is several years older. Yeah, Buzz is three years older than he is. So, but he, Buzz will talk about being in classes with him. So it's I well, don't know the thing if there with are Montesano classes or is that it is a junior and senior high school. So you would start there in like sixth grade, and it goes all the way to twelve. Yeah. So he could have been. I don't know how they would have been in classes together, That's unless they I were some know. sort of art class or something. I have no yeah. idea. An elective, some kind yeah. of thing. I, I don't know how they operated, but apparently they were in classes together. And he was kind of a mentor for Kurt. He would, like, lend him records and old copies of the Detroit-based magazine Cream. Buzz would take Kurt to his first punk rock show, which he said was uh, Black Flag, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that changed Kurt's life. He saw this these people who were full of righteous rage and emotion and fury and desperation, and they were just purging it into their music on stage. And he was like, oh, that's me. That's, that's what I need to do. I need to be that kind of famous musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and punk rock, uh, it did prove to be like a pretty profound influence on his attitude and artistic style, which is funny because his music isn't really punk rock. I wouldn't say that it is, at least. No, it it's definitely It has its influences, yeah. but like it isn't the same as their music. Mm-mm. He became a fan of like the Sex Pistols and other punk bands at the time, like Black Flag, Bad Brains, Millions of Dead Cops, and Flipper. The Melvins were also, like, a huge musical influence on Kurt early on, and he super admired them. He would go to all their shows, help them carry their stuff afterwards, really wanted to pick their brain and learn Mm -hmm. how to play that kind of music. 
And he also says that his first concert was the Melvins, but in reality, it was Sammy Hagar. He's <laughs> a little less badass. Yeah. So he doesn't admit to that one. His whole family was like, three weeks before he went to that Melvin concert, we took him to see Sammy Hagar. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really funny. Yeah. But anyway, this would leave Kurt to like jamming with members of the Melvins and writing music. He would pour words into his journals, and those journal entries would become songs. But again, as we mentioned before, the things he writes about and thinks about and journals about are pretty dark. Yeah. So his stuff was very different. And it became evident, though, that school wasn't really for him. And just two weeks before his high school graduation, faced with the fact that he simply didn't have enough credits to graduate with his class, Kurt elected to drop out. As one does. As one does. And his mother gave him an alternative. He could either get a job or he could move out. And after two weeks of doing neither one of those things, Kurt came home to find all of his things in boxes. Once again, he felt betrayed and abandoned. Um, and from there, he kind of couch surfed, sleeping on his friends' houses and wherever he could find somewhere to stay. But he would, when she wasn't home, sneak back into his mother's basement. Yeah. That makes me so sad. Kurt also claimed that during this period of time, he was homeless and would live under a bridge over the um, Wishkaw River, which is impossible. As his friends later said, they said he hung out there and would, like, you know, write in his journal and be moody under the bridge or whatever and probably do drugs. As we play Louie Louie. Play Louie Louie. <laughs> um, but they said you could never have lived on those riverbanks. It wasn't like concrete pilings or anything. It was just muddy water. And when the tide came in, it was it was all water. Right. So you couldn't have, there's no possible way he could have been sleeping under this bridge. But again, you see that he's like, oh, I was this like a Allan Poe type that wandered and slept under bridges and in gutters. No. You didn't. He definitely was very poor at the time, and that's when the thrift store clothing started, where he would mm -hmm. just buy whatever he could find in bins. They might be a flannel shirt. They might be a dress. They might be the hunting hats. They might be the sunglasses. It didn't matter to him. He just mm -hmm. got what he could. And later, that became, like, iconic, yep. which we'll discuss in the beginning of the next episode. So in early 1985, Kurt forms his own band he called Fecal Matter. Yes. Gross. <laughs> One of several, quote, like, joke bands that he said arose mm -hmm. from his circle of friends that all hung around with the Melvins. It initially featured Kurt singing and playing guitar and the Melvins' actual drummer, Dale Crover, playing bass and Greg Hokinson, sorry, playing drums. Um, they did this for a little while, like a few months. They played some original stuff and some covers uh, before they disbanded in 1986 um, because the Melvins went off to, like, do their real music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, while hanging out at the Melvins' practice space, Kurt met and became friendly with uh, Chris Novoselic. The two did go to high school together. We mm -hmm. found that out briefly. Um, and they kind of knew each other, but I don't think they really forged a friendship until this point in time when they right. noticed that they had this thing in common. I love this quote that Chris Novoselic said in an interview. They were like, oh, you knew Kurt in high school. And he said, well, he was a weird kid, and I was a weird kid, and we thought the world was weird. Yeah. I was like, that's a cute mm -hmm. way to encapsulate that bond. And Chris Novoselic's mother owned a hair salon uh, where Kurt and him would occasionally practice like in the upstairs room. And a few years later, Kurt tried to convince Chris to form a band with him by giving him uh, his like demo copies. And that's where Nirvana began. But Leslie has a better um, third party version of the origin story of Nirvana, because everything I'm telling you right now is told through Kurt's lens. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm going to have you give our fiends a brief Nirvana's origin story before we actually sure. are going to end this week, you guys. Okay. Well, so as you said, so after Fecal Matter disbanded, 
Kurt went around and um, was just kind of handing out his demo tape of like fecal matter matter songs to like everybody that he could that <laughs> he thought like would want to like take him on basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did give one to Chris, who said it took him like a couple months and then he finally listened to it because apparently to everyone else's point of view when Kurt would jam with them and yeah. play. They were all like, he wasn't a great guitarist. He had like two chords that he'd play, but they did they did sense something in him. Like they enjoyed playing with him. Right. Um, he just had this vibe to him and then and they all liked his songwriting. Right. So they were like, he has great, great songs. And the but- melodies that he puts together with just those chords and the lyrics mm-hmm. is amazing. Well but, tracks. He had had a broken yeah. guitar for like five years at that yes. point. <laughs> So anyway, so after like two or three months, uh, Chris finally listened to the demo and was just like, oh, wait, this is really good. I enjoyed some of these songs, especially the song Spank Through, which I think, which is a song that ends up on one of the albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris told Kurt that he was interested in the two formed a band. After months of thinking about it, they finally landed on the name Nirvana. Kurt says they chose this name because it was kind and beautiful and not like the angry, raunchy punk band names that they were on that were like on the scene. Fecal matter? Yes. Like fecal okay. matter. Yeah. Just he was saying. just like, let's go some somewhere else with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chris liked this too, because it kind of set them apart a little bit from the other bands on the scene. Sure. Uh, Nirvana would release their first album, Bleach, in 1988. The lyrics were all written by Kurt, who says most of the songs were about his life in Aberdeen. At this point, Nirvana was just Chris and Kurt, and they would have a drummer, but it wasn't one that they were settled on. So for the their album Bleach, they used Dale Clover, who we said was in the Melvins, um, and that's how they had met him because they were jamming with him, and he said, yeah, I'll come in and like play with you guys. Right. Um, and they had a good vibe together. So once their album was released, it uh, hit college radio stations, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't like publicly accepted really like a lot of people didn't like it at first and not even like it it just didn't get much publicity right is what i'm trying to yeah. say yeah so despite positive feedback from the critics so um the critics liked it but yeah. which is funny that it's like yeah. they like the people that were like mm-hmm. eh, but yeah just didn't get picked up well it's hard to get attention mm-hmm. it's hard to get people to listen to you it, it sure i wonder is. what that's like and I didn't write this in here because I'm gonna stop when Dave Grohl reads makes the band. Yeah, yeah. But um, Bleach didn't even make it onto the billboards at all. But it did once their second album came out. Yeah, because so, people discovered them yeah. and they went mm-hmm. back so and wanted they went to listen back to everything. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a fact that I totally forgot was that Kurt and Chris brought on a second guitarist, Jason Everman, for their first album. Everman really liked Nirvana's demo with Dale Clover and put them put up the money to pay for the band's 30-hour studio session where they recorded Bleach. Everman made the cover of the album and is credited on the sleeve, though he never actually played on the record. He only played with them live. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Chris says that uh, they just wanted to make him feel like he was part Aww. of the family. So he was like, I know he didn't like actually make it on the album, but he was playing with us for the live show. So we just funded wanted their album. And, basically. And he, yeah, he paid his way in. But yeah, all right. That's all right. <laughs> While Kurt was writing the second album and the band continued to tour their first album, Nirvana went through several drummers and almost hired Dan Peters. Dan only played with Nirvana for one show. Um, and then Anne laid drum tracks down for one single, which was Silver. During that time, Kurt and Chris went to Seattle to see a hardcore punk band out of Washington, D.C. called Scream. 
Uh, this is where he was told to go see this show by Buzz Osborne from the Melvins. Right. Kurt and Chris were, were familiar with Scream, but it would be the first time that they saw them live and the first time they would see Dave Grohl, Scream's drummer. Uh, and Kurt and Chris watched Dave play and agreed that Nirvana needed a drummer like that. Luckily for them, Scream broke up and Kurt invited Dave to come out to Seattle for a jam session. This would be the first time Dave would formally meet Kurt and Chris. Dave recalls eating an apple when Kurt and Chris uh, picked him up at the airport for their first meeting. And this is what he says about it. I looked at Kurt and I said, hey, do you want a bright? And he said, no thanks. Those things make my teeth bleed. How awkward is that? Ew. <laughs> First so of all, the whole exchange is weird. Do you want a bite of this food yeah. that I am eating that's like weird? He to- just like walks up and he's eating an apple. Hey, you want a bite? Why would I? No. No. Oh, no. It makes my teeth bleed. Yeah. Because I'm profoundly unhealthy and my gum- gums bleed mm-hmm. probably. I also love it because um, Dave Grohl always talks about how he looked like like a like a horse with his like big teeth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just imagining him eating this apple. <laughs> like, cause he's so, he's so skinny and little, mm-hmm. but he just has this huge mouth. Like, That's really funny. <laughs> eating this out. Yeah. All right. So Chris told uh, Michael Azarad in the band biography, Come As You Are. Love Michael Azarad. He says, We knew within two minutes that he, meaning Dave Grohl, was the right drummer. He was a hard hitter. He was really dynamic. He was so bright, so hot, so vital. He rocked. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. And so within two minutes, Fiends, that's how uh, the Nirvana we know and love today was started. All right. So yeah. I know it doesn't feel like we got that far, but trust me, we did. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually leave us off there okay. for this week. Okay. Next week, we will go into the portion that I referred to earlier as less than a thousand days. Mm. Because it is meteoric, their rise to fame and then rapid descent. And we will then talk about all the theories there are about what could have happened to Kurt in that greenhouse. Right. But I feel it very, very important that you guys have a substantial background on who he was as a person and the things he experienced before you can gather an opinion. Because it, it did color everything that I thought later on, just knowing those things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. So do we have anybody to toast this week? We do. Yay. Uh, we have a new patron. Hooray. And this is the better Courtney. <laughs> Courtney Benson. <laughs> Best fiend forever. <laughs> we love you, Courtney Benson. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you for supporting. We would be dead. Yeah. Um, and yeah, next week we're going to have the second half where all of the mystery and stuff lies. Uh, okay. So I'll come back for that. And... I don't have a, a sign off because we're not done. No. So Yeah. So um see, see you, you next, next week, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.